Organisms aren't the only products of the evolutionary process. Cultural products such as writing, art, and music also undergo change over time, subject to both the constraints of the physical environment and the psychologies of those who make them. In recent years, the study of cultural evolution has exploded with new insights, revelations into the dynamics of how culture is transmitted, how it mutates under different pressures, and why some forms are remarkably resilient and stable across time and space. Just as in biology, patterns in the structures of our artifacts converge on universals and diverge to meet the needs of their distinct environments. Certain forces ratchet up complexity in culture, whereas others act like gravity and draw the works of different societies into shared basins of attraction. Finding the fundamentals behind both the unity and the diversity of cultures, and what cultural evolution does and doesn't have in common with biological evolution, is a field of rich mystery. New research into the structural and cognitive constraints on culture leads us into some of the most fertile questions known to science. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week we speak to SFI Complexity Postdoctoral Fellow, Omidyar Fellow, and ASU SFI Center Fellow, Helena Mitton, about her work on cultural evolution. Namely, her recent Royal Society Proceedings B paper on how material constraints affect the cultural evolution of rhythm with Thomas Wolfe, Cordula Vesper, Gunther Nablich, and Dan Sperber, and the current anthropology preprint she authored on the predictable evolution of letter shapes, an emergent script of West Africa recapitulates historical change in writing systems with Pierce Kelly, James Winters, and Olivier Morin. If you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give and or consider rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Mm. Well, all right. Okay. Eleanor Miton. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity and uh, especially so after the flurry of technical difficulties we've had leading up to this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, today I want to talk about two pieces, two papers that you, you, one you lead authored and one you contributed to as the third author. One will have come out in Proceedings Royal Society B by the time this episode airs, and the other one is still in preprint in uh, current anthropology until next year. So it's it's very exciting that we have an opportunity to discuss this paper while it's still sort of in the womb. Before we get into your research, I would just love to have you give people a little bit of your, your biography and your backstory, like what got you interested in scientific research and your path into your, you know, your PhD program and to SFI. Okay. Um, so I did a BA in sociology first, uh, and I kind of got frustrated with uh, some of the shortcomings to me of sociology, at least as it was taught in the PhD, in the BA I was in. And I always had this interest into cognitive science, like since I was a teenager. And I ended up reading those books that are close to what is usually called cognitive anthropology. And I was like, okay, this is the kind of approach I want to have. And that's the kind of research I'd like to do. And I actually ended up working with most of the authors that inspired me to apply to a cognitive science program at that point. So yeah, uh, sociology, then cognitive science as a master degree for two years. And then I just followed up doing the same kind of things in my PhD program. And where where did you where did you go for your PhD? Uh, so I did my PhD in Budapest at the Central European University um, in the Department of Cognitive Science. 
Um, and it's a department that has uh, four main labs. One is a pretty famous one uh, for developmental psychology. A second one is the joint action one. So a lot of uh, experimental approaches to how people coordinate into tasks. Another one is more visual perception. And kind of the remainder was this cognitive approach to culture and communication mixed with a bunch of behavioral economists, um, kind of experimentalist people as well. And then how did you get from Budapest to SFI? Oh, um, so it was a bunch of kind of coincidences. So I met Vanessa Ferdinand, who used to be a postdoc uh, at SFI at a conferences, and she was very strongly pushing me to apply here. A couple of my supervisors were also pretty pushy about it being a good place for me, and I kind of just trusted them. <laughs> but mostly after my PhD, I really wanted a pretty autonomous type of fellowship. So that was pretty good. And I've always worked between disciplines. So it was kind of nice being in a place that was really designed for it for once, uh, instead of one that where people are trying their best, but you don't really get the kind of project of being interdisciplinary from the get-go. Right on. Yeah. So the first paper I'd like to discuss with you is dear to my heart, and I imagine the, the hearts of many mm. listeners, any, you know, music being such a broadly applicable strain of the human experience, this piece, how material constraints affect the cultural evolution of rhythm it was just such a delightful read. And as we'll kind of unspool in this conversation, seems to have links to so many other projects going on at SFI and elsewhere, not only in cultural evolution, but in biological evolution. I'm just really excited. So I would love for you to start with a little bit of the background about prior research and what set the stage for you and your, your co-authors to ask the questions that you decided to ask in this paper, because this is like built on like a pretty robust literature on cultural evolution already. So there's a bunch of kind of branches and threads we try to tie. Um, so one of it is the kind of general theoretical framework, which is called cultural attraction theory. It had previous names. When it was first started by Dan Sperber, who was one of my PhD supervisors, it was called Epidemiology of Representations. This label didn't encounter as much success as cultural attraction theory, which you can uh, actually call CAT for short, <laughs> uh, for pretty obvious reasons. So this uh, theoretical framework, it's now almost mainstream in cultural evolution, but it really wasn't when I started working with it. And I started working with those kind of concepts during my master's degree. So actually back when I was 19 and eight years ago. Uh, so that goes back a while. So this is like a first bunch of things where culture is really considered a, like a dynamical system to a lot of extent. And like something that is pretty probabilistic and that you should think in terms of which kind of mutations are not going to be random. Because if you get non-random mutation, that's a pretty good way to get things to be culturally stable. Because even if you don't get some kind of good, highly faithful transmission, you're going to have a mechanism that's going to correct for kind of changes. You're going to get back to those kind of stable forms. So that's one part. Other parts are kind of developments in terms of which experiments we are able to run to mimic cultural evolution. So this paper uses a transmission chain experiment. So that's like the telephone game with, you can play with kids where one kid is going to have one sentence to say to the next kid and so on and so on. And by the end of the chain, basically, you get a very different sentence than what the first kid had to say to the second one. So that kind of experiment became a, like a pretty well-spread tool to study cultural transmission over like maybe the last 15 years. Um, and that was a methodology I already wrote a review paper on, and I already used it in previous work as well. And the last thing was we wanted a kind of good domain where you could get very precise measures and precise predictions. And we were lucky to be in this big European project where we're really encouraged to work with the different labs we had. Uh, and part of the joint action lab in at the CU is uh, pretty specialist in doing experiments with music. So we had a proper music lab that was kind of ready for us to play with. Yeah. So just to clarify the concept of cultural attraction theory, it sounds 
basically like it's the same kind of model mm -hmm. as the idea that there are attractor basins in a biological I mean, if you like turn, I guess if you turn like an evolutionary fitness landscape upside down and <laughs> yeah. you drain things into it, right? It's like there are paths through mm -hmm. that landscape that are more probable than other paths. And that um. that these, these transmission chain experiments are basically like running like a massive parallel fruit fly lineages in a laboratory. That's right. It's kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, the idea is pretty similar, except we definitely cannot run as many participants as you can run front flies. Like, I would love to, but uh, <laughs> that, that's not really possible. It's pretty similar. I know some of the people I've worked with on it uh, definitely resist to just collapse both of them, mostly because cultural attraction theory for cultural evolution is really meant to be a bit more stochastic than attractors in dynamical systems are. Huh. Are you going into more detail on why that is? No? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those things that it's just, it's that's like a general theme, it seems, like in SFI, this question about how f safe it is to draw these analogies, right? And then people tend to get a little yeah. defensive about their disciplines, <laughs> and then other people are like really eager to just knock down the walls. Yeah, I think in that case, it's also a lot due to the fact that we've really started to formalize cultural attraction theory not that long ago. So like the oldest models are the ones done by Nicolas Cledier and they're maybe 13 years old. And we're like not a big team or school. So we're kind of still working on what our proper formalism of cultural attraction theory. And I think that's the kind of things we haven't figured out completely yet, how much we can borrow from attractors in other fields. All right. So... You make a really important distinction in this paper between ecological factors and psychological factors in cultural evolution. And uh, I know from before we started this recording that it's both important to make that distinction, but then it's also kind of important to criticize that distinction. And I'd love to hear you unpack what the difference between those two things are meaningfully for the sake of this particular study. Mm. And then maybe we can go into a little bit more detail about ways in which those distinctions start to fall apart. Sure. So maybe first, why is it important to distinguish them? I think it's just in general, if you want to study a phenomenon, it's pretty good if you have a way to parse out what are going to be your different types of causal factors that are going to be at play with it. Uh, so that's definitely one first point. And that's definitely part of the things I really like in cultural attraction theory is it's a pretty good framework and methodology to start playing around with different types of factors. It's pretty flexible for that. So psychological factors or cognitive factors are the ones usually related to how the mind works, roughly, and ecological are pretty much everything that is going to be outside the mind. So this is a distinction Dan started to make in, I think, 1996. And we've just like trying to work on it a bit more. But it's definitely to be thought of as a continuum with things that are kind of more in the mind and others that are more in the environment. An example of psychological factors would be, for instance, the paper I got published earlier this year on the spatial composition in portraits. Oh, yeah. Talk a little bit more about that, because that's actually a really cool paper, too. Yeah, I, I like it because it's... We get to this study, I <laughs> Uh, I really like it because it's also very simple to explain. A lot of people tend to look at profile-oriented portraits of pictures differently after I told them about the story. So it's pretty fun. So for a bunch of reasons, uh, humans tend to prefer and find more aesthetically pleasing compositions. If you have an agent that is oriented in profile, you would have more space in front of the agent than behind. Um, so we just wanted to check out whether that's actually true in European portraiture. Uh, and we collected data from WikiArt from, and uh, R2K. Actually, that's a bit mixed data set from the 15th to the 20th, almost 21st century. Basically, it's a bias you can observe in a lot of paintings. Um, and another nice thing is uh, it's actually a bias that becomes also stronger over time. So you can see... Um, just the frequency and how much eccentric, so how much more space you're putting in front rather than behind your character you're starting to have over time. So yeah, that's it for like one example. I wonder if that's related to 
you know, I, I used to do dinosaur field work and in Wyoming, you know, occasionally as we're driving out to the dig site, this is a kind of a, a lark, <laughs> but we would find these, you know, pronghorn antelope, but they would never run in front of the car. They would race the field vehicles, but they would never get in front of us because presumably the sort of questionable mm -hmm. Evo psych hypothesis about this was that they're used to being chased by American lions and cheetahs in their evolutionary history. And so they didn't like having something behind them, but they liked out racing something. And I wonder if something similar is at play in like the notion that we visually prefer there being space in front of the subject because they're like the like the notion of like standing with your face to the wall is aesthetically unpleasant to us. Yeah, so there's a bunch of reasons that have been advanced. In the way we wrote the paper, we're pretty agnostic on what is the good reason. We're just like, there's those bunch of evidences and hypotheses that have been uh, proposed by people in the literature. We're not taking a side on it. Part of it is actually being able to parse out what is the anterior and posterior side of an agent is very useful to predict its action. And that's something you can find in a lot of animals, actually. So, you know, not even related to them being a prey or not. That's kind of independent of being chased, but you would still need to know what is the most likely direction of movement for most of the other agents you're going to encounter in your environment. So that's one. Uh, related to that is the idea that it's better for action anticipation if you actually have more space in front of the agent, because this is where you would assume they might move. And kind of the last line was about gaze following, because humans are particularly good and interested in following gaze of other people. So if you want to follow the gaze of a human that is depicted in profile, it means you would need to have more space in front of them. Interesting. Yeah, there's so much there on also like what makes a particular piece of cultural media popular, right? It's like the gaze following. <laughs> <Yeah>. the... <laughs> So it's like in that case, you have several factors that would all play in the same direction. So that's pretty nice because you don't have anything that would contradict or like push in the other direction. Although one factor that, at least for some of the history of it, played a role was conventions for centering uh, agents in portraits, which made sense. And one of the things we have evidence for is that whenever you get this uh, norm to be relaxed, uh, your agents start to slide off. And so you get this eccentric effect that increases. So you can kind of counteract those natural or just psychological biases with explicit cultural norms. But if for some reason your norm uh, just weakens, then you're going to get more strength on the psychological bias side. Awesome. So to come back to the drumming paper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that was a big grand. No, 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 no. We love nonlinear tangential mm. conversations here. At least I think we do. No one has told me otherwise yet. So, you know, this is, again, this is a, a paper that's built on a really interesting, robust literature on cultural divergence and convergence in musical production. And you talk in this mm. paper about prior research that's revealed existence of statistical universals. I think a lot of people are familiar with the notion that people can recognize certain kinds of music, like lullabies across yeah. cultural lines. So like, what else are you standing on for this study? And how are you trying to differentiate this particular piece of research from what's already been established? So I think one of the main differences, a lot of the previous studies are actually kind of from out in the wild data. This is an experimental study, uh, which is actually fairly unusual for me. I, um, I tend to be also like large cultural data sets. So that's the first thing, like the approach and the methods we use are pretty different. There was another experiment that used the same methodology to get to universal characteristics as well. But that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to try to have actually kind of different traditions within the lab. So we had a between subject with different conditions paradigm. And yeah, that design just allowed us to put different constraints on those different conditions. So you can just see them evolve in different directions. So that was one of the main thing. Yeah, the other thing is in terms of experiments, usually people start with very complicated things that they ask their participants to reproduce. We started with the simplest thing we could think of, which is basically a metronome. So that's also that has also implications in terms of which direction you predict your movement to go. 
Yeah, so getting into the meat here after a lovely appetizer, this is a really interesting and and clever experimental design. And I think it has a lot of implications for you know anybody listening who is thinking about the design of environments or of like software interfaces. And maybe that's getting a little ahead of things, but I would love for you to talk about how you actually structured this experiment and then the hypotheses that you intended to test with it. Do you have an example of what kind of answer you're expecting? Because <laughs> that's yeah, like yeah, yeah. very broad. And yeah, so this is a study about laying a drum set out in different ways. And so like, you know, it's interesting. I mean, just from my years in, in music, there is remarkable convergence and universality in the like rock and roll drum kit, you know, but like since the advent of highly modular and customizable mm. MIDI setups, you're seeing this massive personalization of people's interfaces mm. for musical control. And it seems like this is an in the wild example of how you were setting up this experiment. And it's, it's the hypotheses that you confirmed about how setting up a toolkit environment changes the affordances, changes the options that we have, and then changes the way that we navigate those and the, the kind of cultural products that result from that. So like, what were you hoping to find out from this experiment? And then how did you set this up in a way with your, your test subjects to produce the results that tested that? Okay. Um, so, well, the first thing is we actually have the same physical setup for all participants. What changes is how we ask them to use it. So it's not exactly, exactly the same, but it's totally true that it changes which affordances they have and what is going to be easier to produce. I think in terms of kind of out in the world things, there's something even simpler about music, but the way guitars can be tuned is also one thing that makes uh, some melodies much easier to play than others. So I think it's it might have been kind of much older traditions in music making to uh, arrange instruments in a way that is actually making whatever you want to produce easier. I don't know if you want predictions, for instance, but I guess what it, this kind of things would predict is that people are first probably going to set up in a way that makes it easier for them to produce what they want to, but that might also mean it's going to be harder to produce other types of productions that are not the ones they had in mind when they figured out this setup. So there's a piece of this that's about where the complexity in musical patterns is coming from here that I think is mm. is really interesting. And I'd love to hear you speak to that. Yeah, so part of the previous studies tended to focus on an increase in complexity, but measured as from moving from a random kind of sequence to one that is more ordered, which you know, depending on which version you have of what comp how, how to, com to measure complexity, it might actually not really mean complexity or like it won't be an increase because, for instance, for description length, it's going to be actually a decrease. If you get something that is ordered, it's easier to describe than something that is fully random. So we actually wanted to show that if you have this kind of mismatch between the physical setup or your affordances and a very simple rhythm, you're going to be pushed in this region where the rhythm that is easier to produce is also going to be a more complex one. And I think maybe I should precise something about the whole experiment is it was really thought of as a proof of concept. And can we obtain those kind of effects? So that's definitely one of the effects we just wanted to prove is actually possible. That if you're stuck in a kind of suboptimal level of complexity, you might be pushed towards more complex versions. So basically the setup is the same, the layout mm -hmm. is the same, but you're manipulating the order in which the drums have to be hit. So people are having to move yeah. more or less in order to play the same pattern. Yes, so they all start having to do the same pattern, that is this metronome, and then we have four different conditions. In two conditions, they are having only one uh, type of distance to cover between pads, and it can be either small for the one of the condition or large for the other one. And the large distance is basically twice as large as the small one. And then we have two what we call the unequal movements conditions, which are 
a mix of those two types of distances. So it would be either covering like a small distance, another small distance, then a large distance, or the other way around, starting with the large distance and then having small, small distances. And so there are five hypotheses yes. that you test in this paper. And this is really cool, I thought, because this really shows just how careful and granular you are as a researcher and how delicately you manage to differentiate between all of these different effects. So could you get into <laughs> the weeds here with me on that? Sure, sure, yeah. sure. So part of the reason we have a pretty detailed hypothesis is all of the study was pre-registered, and that's something I do on pretty much every study I lead. And so it means you're going to have some kind of record of what were your hypothesis, methods, and analysis plan before running the study. So it usually is considered to be a good way to avoid people just kind of bricolaging <laughs> their results. And uh, I think it was a pretty good exercise here to figure out what kind of effects we wanted to observe exactly and what we were predicting. One of the reasons we just have so many hypotheses is because there are hypotheses that pertain to comparison between two of the conditions and hypotheses that are more general. Um, so I'm not sure in which order the hypotheses are in the paper anymore. Um, one is this general divergence between conditions. So because you have those kind of different physical constraints in each condition, we predict that over this passing of generation, they're basically going to go into different uh, possible randoms. So that's one. And then there's kind of more nitty-gritty ones about what are going to be the specific adjustments you're going to find in each conditions. So one is that the two conditions that have equal movements are still going to be able to remain around this kind of metronome-like rhythm, whereas the ones that have unequal movements are going to move into different type of rhythm, but they're going to not be those kind of physiochronous uh, regular beat anymore. And then you have like specific between the two equal movements. So if you're doing just small movements, uh, we were predicting that what is called the inter-onset interval. So that's the time between two beats was going to be smaller than if you have to do only large movements um, to reflect, again, what are those physical constraints. For the two unequal movement conditions, um, because you have this one distance that is larger to cover than the two others, and it's not in the same place in the two conditions, we were predicting that you would get this larger inter-onset interval at different points in the sequence they were asked to repeat. And the last thing is, uh, actually, that's just something that people would usually predict about most of those transmission chain experiments, that people would become, just make less mistake in copying random because the rhythm they're copying should be more adjusted to the constraints that they were in. And that's the one that caught you off guard, right? Yes, yeah. uh, that's the one that didn't work out. Yeah, that, that was slightly surprising. So what we assume, or what's our hypothesis, but we cannot really test it, uh, is that we might have just been at a, some kind of threshold of how bad people are at copying that. Because we were using naive participants. So it might just be that they cannot get any better at that. Um, Which actually, that's that's a good loop out to talk yeah. about how you recruited people for this. <laughs> yes. And, you know, you had, a, mm. you had a kind of an interesting uh, anecdote about that. About recruiting participants? I am totally leading you into this. But yeah, like, how did you find the people for this? And what kind of people were you using in the study? So we were using mostly people... Well, that was like our criterion for recruiting people. We wanted them to be right-handed because we needed them to have at least that part of constraint similar and not varying whether you were going to use your right or left hand. And uh, we recruited them mostly through the um, system we had with the Joint Action Lab because we had a database. Turned out we didn't manage to find enough participants in that database, so I ended up recruiting people off Reddit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you do what you have to do to finish your PhD. Uh, <laughs> so we asked all of them to have no experience in music. Just ask to not have any formal training or having played an instrument. And yeah, we managed to find 120 of those people. So. 
I'm sure there are more of them out there. I I hope so. <laughs> so, you know, again, I am one of these people that errs on the side of consilience, you know, and I, I read a paper like this. And to me, it sounds a lot like when you think about the way that certain errors seem more likely because of the distance between two mm. two genes and like the way that copying errors happen as stuff gets mm. shuffled around on chromosomes mm. that this is not necessarily and again this this sort yeah. of gets to that question of like where you draw the line with so-called ecological constraints because like some of them might be actually like inside the organism right <laughs> like you're looking like multi-scale mm. systems and so i'm curious just, you know, kind of more speculative question, what links you think there might be or what insights you think this suggests in terms of how cultural evolution is related to biological evolution and how that is linked to, like, for example, I think I sent you the totally surreal and terrifying, um, <laughs> I think it was in Popular Science article about convergent mm. evolution and crabs and how like mm. different groups of crustaceans keep evolving into crabs. <laughs> and it's like this, you know, this thing about, mm. again, you know, there's a sort of like easier pathways through the evolutionary landscape. I don't know. What are your thoughts on all of that? So one thing about this distinction between ecological and what's inside or outside the organism, maybe that's a funny side note, but we actually had pretty vivid debate between the co-authors of this paper, because you still do need a mind to perceive the environment, and the environment is always mediated through your body and your cognition still. So that's something we haven't really solved. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. We just went with what is making the point come across easiest. So that might not be a very good answer. I have to say, I, I'm not a biologist by training, so I, I would tend to refrain from having very strong opinions on how it works for genetic evolution. But there's definitely convergent evolution both for biology and culture. And then sort of relatedly, there's this question of divergence and the emergence of new complexity, right? And so the, the sort of path-dependent histories of, of different lineages and gets to the, the heart of one of the most, what is a core question in both studies of biological evolution and cultural evolution, which is where does all of this diversity come from? What are the constraints that lead to more complexity in an organism or in a, a civilization over time? So, I mean, you might have the same answer to that question as you did the last one, but... Yeah, I mean, that's a very broad question. So there's a bunch of links for sure. Yeah, I think it's mostly you have very different constraints and problems between biological and uh, cultural systems. And one of the things is for culture, it's actually much harder to maintain stable types because the mutation rates you have are like very different from the ones you get in biological systems. So in terms of you know, more complexity science kind of concepts, that, that would mean you would kind of get into error catastrophe pretty quickly. So the kind of enigma for culture is more, how do we maintain stability? Whereas I guess for biology, you have a bunch of mechanisms that we know are able to maintain stability because DNA transmission is pretty faithful. It's just like not even the same order of magnitudes in terms of errors you get in cultural systems. That said, I think this is the right time to give a shout out to, I think it was episode 17 that we had with Chris Kempis, because he and I talked in that episode about his research into copying times for genetic information in mm -hmm. cells as they scale and how you get the advent of multicellularity is like a response to the threat of an error catastrophe oh, as awesome. the amount of DNA required mm -hmm. to regulate the contents of the cell gets bigger and bigger as the cell is growing. And then you get to a point where it actually makes more sense to have a multicellular organism. And so again, like I think about this in terms of one of the caveats that you give in this paper is that most musical production in human beings is in groups now. And I wonder if, again, I'm being totally irresponsible here, but <laughs> no I wonder worries. if this kind mm. of divergence and increase in complexity that you're seeing in this study is like watching the beginning of an evolutionary transition into collective musical perf like practice and performance. 
like you're you're watching mm-hmm. the length of the code start <laughs> to grow until like eventually you just need to form a band. Uh, <laughs> I like the idea, but I I think uh, people who are you know much more involved in debates on what are the evolutionary origins of music have other hypotheses on why music making is often happening in groups. And yeah, like even if those people tend to disagree, mostly it's like either because music is a good signal of your ability to coordinate within groups. So it would have emerged in the context of intergroup warfare or because it's simply a good way to bond with other people. So you have those kind of other hypotheses on why you would get music making in to happen in groups more than alone. So where else do you see examples of this kind of dynamic in action in, in cultural evolution where ecological factors lead to different stable cultural items mm-hmm. from the same seed? <laughs> so I'm not sure in the real world it happens exactly from the same seed. Like that that's the part where, you know, that's kind of an artifact of having done that in the lab. And you get this kind of path dependency in the real world that you just talked about. So one domain where you, you're very likely to observe it is cooking, because your availability of raw products is very different depending on which environment you're in. But there are older things just like availability of uh, eating sources that have impacted a lot uh, where cooking and like eating your food would happen. So one of the places and ways it, it could occur is if you have actually hot springs around, because you can just like put your food in some kind of continent and use the hot spring or uh, whatever water is warm behind, nearby to cook your food to some extent. So I guess another example would be the availability of different spices, right? And yes, like, how that affects... like the kind of ingredients you have is also going to impact which kind of food you're going to be able to prepare. And I guess there might have been also major shift with foods and staples being introduced in different places. So no offense to my ancestors, but this has to do with the notoriously bland English cuisine. You know, just it's like it's too far mm. to reach. That explains kind of why they went to such an effort mm. to establish uh, transoceanic trade routes, yeah. which is I don't, anyway, we're getting way off the subject, <laughs> but like there is no, so just about that. Yeah. There's this lovely book called Consider the Fork about different, just like the story of cooking and cooking in instruments. And the author at some point argues that British food was probably not as bland as it looks like because it was cooked in much smaller pots. So it was actually not as overcooked as the timing on the recipes look like. If that's any consolation. uh... (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of an origins of life thing, you know, with the the hot springs hypothesis, you know, collecting organic molecules, you know, rather than anyway. So I I mean, I... (laughs) Okay, you're gonna have to edit this part out. Uh, but I, I grew up learning to drink wine on like South of France wine, and like very specific species, and uh, like that definitely has a major impact on which wines I appreciate now still. And wine is probably also one of the kind of domains where you have very strong dependence on what your final product is based on what is the species of grape you have. What is it they say? The smaller the berry, the richer the juice or something like that? It's um, like, you know, like the small yeah. dogs seem to have as many neurotransmitters <laughs> as the big dogs. But I don't know. <laughs> it's, okay, so there's a very low activation energy transition that I want to make here into this other preprint for current anthropology that I was really excited to read about also. The Predictable Evolution of Letter Shapes, an emergent script of West Africa recapitulates historical change in writing systems. Uh, Pierce Kelly is the lead author. James Winters, who fans of cultural evolution study will probably recognize as a big name. And then Olivier Morin. So this paper that feels like a natural transition just because we're talking about the same kind of processes at play, but about the evolution of writing systems over time. So can you take us on a little tour of the history of the thinking about the evolution of writing systems? You know, like there's there's actually, Um, I highly recommend people read this because this is a very rich and detailed piece of the paper, but just a 30,000 foot overview would be great. Okay. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I should start though just by highlighted like 
because this was a really dream team to work in. And I think it, it's probably also what makes the paper that great. So Pierce Kelly is a linguist and anthropologist and is probably one of the most knowledgeable people about the vice script of Liberia, which is the one we've, we're studying in this paper. Olivia Mohan had already worked a bunch on uh, what kind of shape writing systems take. So in terms of factors of attraction, we were talking before in like ecological versus psychological. It is an amazing work at showing that you get cognitive factors about what kind of shape characters take and mostly that they have cardinal or oblique orientation in terms of uh, strokes a lot more than you would predict just by chance. And that's one of the ways it's really tuned to our uh, visual system. And yeah, uh, and James Winters is uh, mostly linguistic evolution and cultural evolution in general. And actually, the methods we used in that papers are methods I first used on my paper on the graphic complexity of motifs in heraldry. So that's where, like, that's all the kind of influences that went into that paper, uh, you know, as a start. Now, back to what are kind of hypotheses about the evolution of writing. There's a lot of writing scholars that have suggested that you get this kind of almost natural history of writing that comes from first having very complicated signs that looks almost drawing-like and having them like progressively simplify. And you would also have this kind of transition from pictorial systems to things that are more with smaller linguistic units. So the example that most people will probably be familiar with is Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? Going from this is an image to mm. like the hieratic script, which is like on its way to just becoming phonemic yeah. letters, right? So it's what like symbol to mm. grapheme, right? To phoneme. Yeah. So I think it also has this kind of interesting almost sociology of science thing where it's an hypothesis that... I think the paper that is usually cited for it is from Gelb in the 1960s. And I think a lot of people who worked on kind of more localized system would disagree with it. But for some reason, this hypothesis still has some, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> ground. <laughs> so there's that and there's a bunch of work that are more on the experimental side from linguistic evolution, where if you ask people to do some kind of guessing Pictionary game in labs, you can also get those kind of simplification effects where, you know, they started doing something that looks a lot like a drawing and they end up having things that looks a lot more than like symbols. And you can also get those kind of simplification if you ask them to reproduce a character from memory, like you get differences. So if you're asking them to reproduce them with the model in front of them, you can maintain pretty complex kind of scribbles. If you do that, but ask them to reproduce them from memory, they're going to simplify a lot more. Um, and that's work from the Center for Language Evolution in Edinburgh. So that's actually where James Winters did his PhD. Cool. So you make a really important distinction in this paper, and that's the distinction between simplification and compression. And I think that this really gets at to uh, spoiler alert this, you know, this, this gets at, I think a much bigger issue about, I am constantly talking about physicist Mark Buchanan's 2018 nature physics editorial on a bias for simplicity in physical theories. And I know that, you know, you work with Simon Dedeo and, and Simon has recently done some really interesting work on the sort of guiding like Occam's razor and like consilience and this trend that's not a consistent trend, right? But it's interesting to note the contexts in which we move toward simpler, more unifying theories in science, or we look for, this is sort of like the ghosts haunting this entire conversation, which is when is it important to make a distinction and when is it okay to bundle things together you know in taxonomy you've got lumpers and splitters mm -hmm. and so like this research gets at this question of languages when are they getting too simple when do the letters start to blur together and yeah so i guess i would love to hear you talk a little bit about what you mean specifically by talking about compression versus simplification and then what are the constraints that you are suggesting in this paper about when a, a visual writing is going to get 
simpler over time or why it's getting simpler and like when does it stop getting simpler when does it have to start becoming more complex again you know when does it become when does it mm. all crabs and then like you know when does it when do we have to like assign some different roles to the basketball team okay that's okay. rough but okay um so i think Maybe we need to start with uh, what do communication systems do first? Because uh, we kind of need to get from what are the kind of constraints that operate on those cultural items before answering all of those questions. And one of the first thing is a writing system is really a set of uh, written symbols or characters that codes for a set of meanings. So simplification can occur in different ways. So you could just lose characters and meanings together. And it just means you have less complex stuff. Compression means you're still managing to communicate the same amount of information, but with simpler symbols, usually. And that's the way we use it in this paper. You mentioned the techniques by which you actually measured the complexity. So I guess, first of all, you mentioned that you had developed some of these techniques on an earlier paper that we'll also link to in the show notes on heraldry, which is really cool. But I would love to hear you talk about like, yeah, because this is something that comes up, I guess, you know, for example, in the Facebook group all the time, which is, you know, people arguing about these different measures of complexity. And like, this is a bigger kind of argument surrounding complex systems research in general. But you came up with a really finely specified and concrete, actionable set of measures for how you like standardized your data set and then operated on it. And I think that was really cool. And then talk about the data set too, because the language that you studied for this is fascinating. Okay, so the language is um, this vice script of Liberia. It was invented uh, early 19th century. And what's interesting is you don't get that many independent invention of writing. So it's not exactly independent uh, because a part of the group that invented it had been exposed to writing in other forms. So it's those kind of almost de novo creation of um, writing. Um, and there's like hardly a dozen of those uh, that happened. And so that was why it was particularly interesting. And it's also one that is really well informed. Uh, so it's well informed also because Pierce did a great job at kind of tracking all the people who had done inventories of the signs and uh, sounds that were using in it. So in that case, uh, we had that, I think our first data point is 1834. I'm not wrong. And the last one is the 2005 from Unicode. And we have data points on like this kind of census of the characters in the script almost every 10 years in between, like 10 to 15 years. I think we had like 16 time points or something around that. So it's like geologists getting to watch an island form, you know, like it's... <laughs> a bit. It's like really rare data. Um, like it, it's a really amazing data set uh, for sure. And then talk about how you actually standardized and and then the measures, because there's two different measures of, of complexity that you're studying here. And I think those are both really interesting because that spills out into conversation I had with Jeffrey West about like fractals and like the history of complex systems and how you actually measure coastlines and, and mm. all that kind of stuff. I, I, again, I'm, I'm God, I got to stop this. But <laughs> but yeah, this really, really interesting mm. methodology here. I'd love to hear you talk. Yeah, about. So we actually mostly borrowed it from this transmission chain of symbols that uh, Kirby and Tamaris did. And there are two types of measures we're using. So one is uh, called, I think, usually algorithmic. So it's really just taking your picture, compressing it as much as you can, and see what is the size it still has on your hard drive. Uh, so it's kind of a bit agnostic one to some extent. The second one is called parametric, and it's a ratio of what is your inked surface divided by what are your parameters around it. And it was used in psychophysics experiments, so we know it's actually a good proxy for how hard it is to remember and kind of learn uh, characters. So that's like one of the nice things. Uh, actually, even algorithmic types of measures seem to correlate to some extent with human performance. At some point, I went down the 
rabbit hole of looking at ergonomy studies that happened 2000s about it. So that's where we kind of know that usually more complex symbols are going to be harder to recognize and to learn. So that's one of the constraints you get that should drive those kind of simplification of character or compression of the script. So to draw that line to ergonomics, it's like why you don't have any pretzel chairs, right? Like like the amount of time it takes to get in and out of a chair determines how likely that chair is to exist. I'm not sure. So like in terms of ergonomics, I was thinking more about like kind of cognitive or task oriented performance, uh, not necessarily like physical. Well, there's a link between this paper and the drumming paper in terms mm. of keyboard layouts, right? And the convergence on a QWERTY keyboard kind of, it seems like it has a lot to do with the distance between keystrokes. So keyboards are actually like those kind of super path dependent story where, uh -huh. you know, they were optimized from typewriters. So they were made so I think it was just easier for the mechanism to still work. So it actually minimizes like crossing of something in the machinery in the first place. That's why they don't actually make a lot of sense for typing now. Uh, and uh, fun fact, I have a Nazarte keyboard as a French person, not a QWERTY one. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure if I'm trying to type quick, I'm going to make different typos than you would oh, on yeah. a QWERTY keyboard. That That's this kind of how uh, your material environment is going to change oh yeah because it, it was locked in but i guess it was originally a parametric complexity right because you said it's like the bars inside the yeah the typewriter. uh yeah i think now the optimal would be like the dvorak probably yeah i had uh, a friend who changed his keys out to the dvorak one of my supervisors did uh <laughs> <laughs> so, so what were the predictions that you tested in this study so we wanted to test whether you find this general simplification of characters over time. Uh, and then we were interested in what's, like which characters in the distribution are actually going to change most. So our idea was, if you actually get a system to be more compressed, uh, what is going to change is mostly the more complex characters are going to become simpler because they're just like harder to process. So you have constraints to get them to be simpler but really simple characters wouldn't get any simpler if they're you know already at this kind of optimal between being able to distinguish and remember so that would mean that overall between 1834 and 2005 mm. when you're looking at the evolution of the vice script that mm. it ends up kind of becoming more homogeneous right like yeah, in, its, so in the complexity kind of, of a, different letters yeah that's so that's a consequence if you get only your more complex letters to become simpler but your simple letters kind of stay at the same level it means you're just going to be have less variation uh in terms of how complex your characters are so it gets more homogeneous so i think you know i, I kind of jokingly alluded to this mm. uh, with the imaginal crabscape but, you know, this is because I was, mm. you know, when we had Jennifer Dunn on the mm. show in episodes five and six talking about trophic networks, one of the most interesting things about her work is how conserved those food webs are in completely different ecosystems across like hundreds of millions of years. And, it, you know, it really suggests that the niches have been established, mm. that when you have an ecological collapse, like a mass extinction, then there's a moment, and we talked about this in the transmission series also in episode 29, about how like mutation rates go up after a mass extinction and things, you know, radiate to fill the, the lost niches. So it's it, this, this kind of work suggests something similar, which is that like that the amount of changes, the degree that you see a visual language changing in complexity over time has to do with the number of characters involved and like how much differentiation there has to be between those things in order to be recognized as distinct characters. And do you think that this is a fair analogy that like basically for the same reasons or for similar reasons to like an evolutionary radiation in a collapsed food web, you know, that there are in a really thick, dense language, like Chinese written language, where you've got like hundreds and hundreds of characters, there's less room to move. 
I actually have some work, but like not out yet on that. Uh, so like, you're going to need to invite me again. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> like, yeah, that's kind of all I can say. Uh, but yeah, you definitely get some kind of pressure from distinctiveness. Actually, another case study we did, and we actually also did it with Olivia Mo about distinctiveness in is also on heraldry. And we did this kind of model to show that people kind of apparently try to maximize distinctiveness in terms of which combination of features they put on their coat of arms. So you kind of get those frequencies of each type of coats of arms that are more based on the frequencies of their elements than by copying them. I don't know. Heraldry is a really interesting example. And, and here I'm stepping completely off the cliff into something I know nothing about. But like, you know, because it's a symbol made of other symbols, then it sort of seems like it loops us back to questions around the evolution of syntax and how you are able to generate distinctive sentences rather than having to remember a bunch of unique components, right? Like a, like a complex family crest seems a whole lot easier to assemble than a completely unique letter you know, that's supposed to represent your house, right? Yeah. So to be fair, what we did was using like fairly simple coats of arms only. So yeah, our data set was basically pretty much all coats of arms that could be kind of coded down as one color, another color, and one motif or, you know, type of shape. So it doesn't say much about like very complex ones. So all three of your hypotheses were confirmed by this study. Did anything about your results surprise you? Honestly, mostly how well it worked. I, I think that that's something that people forget, but like as a scientist, you're also very surprised when things work. Like I actually, yeah, you probably picked the two papers I have where predictions are the most well confirmed. So yeah, I know the portraits too, but otherwise usually things don't really work that well. So yeah, I think we weren't too surprised. We're just like, this is really a beautiful example and we're really happy with it. So just out of a commitment to thoroughness here, <laughs> this paper has towards the end of it a really intricate section on, on the context in which these symbols could end up being compressed. And it was really interesting just to rattle them off and, and then give you an opportunity to go deeper on this stuff. You know, it, the, you, you differentiate between the possibility that Compression is a solution to a coordination problem or the process of institutional standardization or that it has something to do with the movement of language from one medium into another medium. And I'd just be really curious to hear you give a little more detail on that and then how you and your co-authors were able to distinguish between the effects of those different possible causes and where you see them explaining or not explaining the results that you got? I mean, that, that's like all possible explanations. But I think that's like kind of the tricky part. Like you really need so fine-grained data on a lot of things if you want to be able to like parse all of those out. So, I mean, given everything we've discussed today, you know, what are some take-home insights that you feel that you can offer people in terms of actually living in the mix of cultural evolution. And I know a lot of people are concerned in this time with the, you know, the collapse of civilization. What does your research suggest about the interplay of all of these factors? I think about people that are at work on like archival or cultural preservation projects. I th you know, I think about people that are interested in pioneering new modes of linguistic communication to try to match the complexity of our evolving media landscape. And, you know, what advice, if any, do you have for people that are looking to sort of play with these forces and actually act upon cultural evolution in, in meaningful ways? So I think one first thing, which is kind of more property of culture, I tend to use in the way I work, is this idea that like, you know, sometimes cultural practices almost go kind of out of equilibrium or like in kind of places that are not necessarily optimal to match the different ecological or psychological factor. 
And it's kind of a property of it and of this, you know, idea that culture operates mostly through those directed types of transformation that with each passing generation. It kind of means it's going to get back to something that is more optimal if it doesn't feel like it is optimal right now. So I think it's a pretty optimistic or at least kind of a bit ends off way to see how culture evolves. Because like if it's a dynamical system that has those kind of preferred Read like parts of a landscape it would ultimately move back to yeah it's kind of double-edged because you can also think it's meaning we're doomed as well because you (laughs) cannot do much about it yeah i think it's also just a good method or way to see the world to try to parse out what are different factors in in those cultural phenomena especially when they feel a bit overwhelming i mean at least for me i know usually understanding things makes me much calmer about them so I guess that's that's probably more my kind of take home. It's like just trying to understand is usually helpful. I keep hoping that we have fewer messaging apps. That would be a beautiful instance of collapse. Like the they're, mm. the letters are too similar to one another, right? Or like it's yeah. But I mean, you know, it it also has this implication of usually you're gonna get what you need out of culture. Like if you have those kind of niche for one function, you're gonna have something fulfilling it. So ultimately, you know, if it looks like it's not actually happening now, it's going to happen at some other point. I guess there's money for all of those startups. So something is feeding all of those crabs. Well, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Helena, thank you so much for taking the time with this. And thank you so much for co-authoring such interesting research and for being so patient in this conversation. Um, That's my pleasure, really. Anything else you want to offer people before we bounce? Uh, Anything you want to point people to beyond your Google Scholar page and your Twitter account, which people should be following? (laughs) And if you're not, I'll find you. (laughs) Um, Apart from that, not really. Um, Yeah, just feel free to read any of my papers. Like, yeah, I mean, right now I'm also pretty free to come to lab meetings to talk about any of those. (laughs) Feel free to reach out in any case. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks a lot. research links, and educational resources, or to support our site, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.